so let's open up our Bibles to uh, Psalm chapter 8. Uh, that's where we're going to be for uh, this morning. What a great uh, way to open and worship, uh, connecting uh, really to a lot of what Psalm 8 has to say. Our God is greater, our God is stronger, our God is higher. Uh, man, good, good stuff. So what I'd like to do is uh, just start by reading through the psalm. It's fairly short. Um, we'll read through it, and then we'll take a second and pray, and then we'll get started. If you don't have a Bible, uh, it'll be on the screen for you. Uh, psalm chapter 8, verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you could care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hand. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the fields and the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the pass of the sea. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. God, I come before you and I'm so thankful for the opportunity to uh, spend time in your word together with your people. God, my prayer is, is simple. God, that, that my words would be your words. God, that I would not get in your way of what you want to communicate. Um, God, let us exalt you in your word today. God, we pray this in your name. Amen. I am a uh, child of the 70s and 80s. And uh, anybody else here, child of the 70s, 80s? Yeah, woohoo. All right, good. And I grew up in the Midwest, and I grew up in a Christian home. Now, as with anybody who has a story, a short history, whatever you would say, um, that leaves me with some memories, some fond, some not so fond. Um, and it also leaves me with associations. You know, like when you, you have two memories that go together so well that you can't remember one without the other. Maybe it's a, a song that was played at your wedding, and every time you hear it, it takes you back to that time. Or a movie that you saw at a certain point in your life, and every time you hear of it or see it, it takes you right back to that spot. Maybe it's an aroma that makes you or makes you think or, or takes you. These associations that we have in our lives, everyone has them. And most of, most of ours come from our past. And if you're anything like me or you are my age or possibly maybe a little bit older and you grew up around the church, there's an association that you have that I am somehow unable to escape when I come to Psalm chapter 8. So what I thought we might start with this morning, because I really was curious. I'm not in the Midwest anymore. I'm not in necessarily the same type of church that I grew up in. I was really curious to know how many people were like me. So I thought, let's, let's do a little church subculture quiz this morning. Now, don't worry. Some of you are getting nervous already. This won't be graded. I'm not, I'm not going to ask you to hand these in or anything. And to be perfectly honest, if you fail this quiz, you might actually be better off in life. Okay? <laughs> so I'm going to throw a couple pictures of some people up on the screen, and we're going to see who knows who it is and who doesn't. All right? So here's the first one. That was good. I thought the 8 o'clock would ace this. You guys, that was a little bit faster than the 8 o'clock. In fact, well, I'll tell you that, that in a second. Hold on. So this is Sandy Patty. For those of you who don't know, she is a uh, Christian musician, a Christian artist um, from back in the day, back in my past. 
And these are album covers. So these are three wonderful album covers. You can tell it's the 80s because of the hair. Um, my mom had like that exact same hairstyle around the same time. It was great. I think she had that dress too. So anyway, that's Sandy Patty. Okay, let's, let's try. The next one's probably going to be even a little bit easier. Oh, there was almost a cheer. All right. So who is this? Michael W. Smith or Smitty if you were in his fan club, you know, and knew him a little bit better and got the early release of this CD, uh, Go West, Young Man, which I did in 1991. And even then, even back then, when I, and I mean, I thought this dude was cool, right? I looked at this album cover and I go, wow, you look like you have a lion mane. I mean, like that, that hair it, that's, that's a helmet. I mean, that's a helmet before they had a helmet here. That's pretty amazing. And you're thinking to yourself, why are you showing us pictures of Sandy Patty and Michael W. Smith? Well, in 1983, Michael W. Smith wrote a song, and Sandy Patty put that song on her album. And I wanted to share just a piece of that song with you. Go ahead, Jesse. That's about all I can take. All right. It's hilarious in the eight o'clock service, you know, I set it all up the same way and I started playing the song and there were some people who were like singing along with it and smiling and then I was like, then they, I stopped like, what, what the heck? <laughs> Listen, when I come to Psalm 8, I cannot not hear that song. I cannot not hear Sandy Patty singing in my ears. And while I have no critique over Sandy Patty as a person, uh, at least I, I, not that I would want to, to give or anything like that. And I certainly love the message of the song. It's straight scripture. The music, however, makes me struggle a little bit. Because when I come to this, this psalm, there are things that are from my past, things that are from culture. See, music is not something that is transcendent of culture. It, it's very hard for music to rise above culture and feel timeless. Things move on. And when I was a child in the 80s, even then, I felt like that was like my mom's song. In fact, I can remember her with like a karaoke machine, like singing to Sandy Patty in the family room. And it was great. They're good memories. They're fond memories. They're happy memories. And even though, you know, you have a happy, peppy, upbeat song and everything, what it makes me realize is that there are times when I bring associations to Scripture that are not always helpful. If I bring something to Scripture, and again, this is me personally. I don't know if you experienced this or not. Someone came up to me after the 8 o'clock service and said, well, you just shared that that, you know, make, doesn't help you when you come to Scripture, and then you played the song for us. Now you've cursed us all. You know what I mean? I thought, well, that's a good point, but I'm still going to do it. Um, that for me personally, and I would encourage you, whatever the associations are, we need to remove them because what I strongly desire is that God speaks his word to us. That I come to him on his terms. That when I read these words of scripture, I get his definitions of things. I get the depth of emotion that he desires that I feel from it. Not the things that I place on it because of how I come to it. And that was, for me, that's just a, a personal experience. And for you, you might have many others. But here's one that I think all of us would share in right as we start in verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. See, it's not just songs. Sometimes it's words. Words that are unfamiliar or words that take on different meanings in our culture or words that we just don't use. Or if they are used, we think that that person must be kind of pretentious or he's really overreaching. Like, when is the last time in conversation you used the word majestic? Majestic. Someone asks you, a friend asks you, hey, how was your weekend? What'd you do? And you go, oh, 
we, me and the family, we went to this new restaurant and we, we you know, tried it out. Oh, how was it? It was majestic. I mean, that's just not in our vernacular. Like if someone uses the word majestic, they might be kidding about something or they might be, you know, reaching. Or for me, it's like I'm, I'm picturing a 1985 special on the bald eagle on the National Geographic channel where the eagle is soaring over the canyons and a narrator comes on the majestic bald eagle, soars over the canyons looking for, you know. It's not a word that we're familiar with. And in the same way that that song rings in my head and then I hear this word, I think I come to scripture sometimes with my preconceived notions and I miss things. I miss things that God wants me to to see. I don't want us to do that this morning. I want us to come to him on his terms. And so when we read this, oh Lord, our Lord, let's recognize this. Interesting thing here. David says, oh Lord, and that first word Lord, you look at them and go, oh, they're the same word. They're not actually. The first word, Lord, is the proper name for God. It's Yahweh. He says, O God, creator of the universe, master of all, none higher than you, O God, Yahweh. And then he makes it personal. He says, O Lord, Yahweh, our Lord. And that word literally means master, my master. O God of the universe, the one who created everything, my master. The one whom I serve. How majestic is your name in all the earth. And this word majestic means probably what you think it does. It means excellent, lofty, high above, glorious, weighty. In fact, some of the picture that you get is it speaks to huge bodies of water like the ocean and the power and the strength that is held within it. My wife and I are very different. She loves the wind, I do not like the wind. She loves the ocean, I do not like the ocean. But I get convicted when I ask her why because I realize her reason for liking them is way better than my reason for not liking them, especially spiritually speaking. And it's one of those things where, where I don't know if you ever do this, but if, if you're married, it took me a long time to figure this out, and I'm kind of slow. So if, if I can help you at all in this and you're a young married person, or maybe you're older and you're just even slower than I am, If you can begin to appreciate your spouse for the differences, it is amazing. Like, she looks at the world differently than I do. And at first, I was like, why do you do that? You need to look at the world the way I do. Man, that was foolish. Because there is a whole realm of beauty that is opened to me when I begin to see that not everyone sees things the way that I do. She loves the ocean. She loves wind. And she says this, because it's so big and it's so uncontrollable, and it's so powerful, and I just stand there, and I think to myself, like, it is amazing to be in something that I have absolutely no control over. It overwhelms her, and I go, yeah, that's the reason I don't like it. (laughs) I don't like it because I can't control it. I don't like it because I can't, you know, do this. God is majestic. He can't be controlled. He's powerful. He is strong. We, we should be overwhelmed and wallow in his greatness. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, I think Lucy is asking questions to someone about Aslan, and Aslan is the lion who, if you don't know the story, which is amazing if you don't know the story, but if you don't, Aslan is, is the lion who represents the Jesus Christ character in the story, and, and Lucy is asking this question, she's going to meet him, or she, you know, is he safe? And the person responding goes, is he safe? No. No, he's not safe. He's anything but safe, but he is good. 
So when we think about God, he is, he's uncontrollable. He is not tame. He is powerful, but he is good. He is great. He is excellent. He is high above. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Just the very mention of your name, your fame, your renown. Then he says this, you have set your glory above the heavens, above everything else in creation, above everything else we could ever imagine, God's glory is above. Then he moves on to verse 3. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Now David begins to transition and he begins to draw this great compare and contrast. Like this is you, God, majestic, great, you, your glory is above the heavens, And in verse 2, he even says this, this is how strong, this is how great you are. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your your foes, rather, to still the enemy and the avenger. He's saying, listen, you take the weak to defeat the strong. You use things that the world goes, there is no way that this would happen. Now think about this, this is David. Any like huge Bible story coming to mind? David and Goliath. You use the weak to defeat the strong just because you can. And it silences those who would talk poorly or talk badly about you. And then verse 3 again. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which have set you in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for? Let's set the context a little bit here. If you're like me, you think about King David, and, and maybe you're unfamiliar, or maybe you are, but King David was not always a king. When he was young, he was a shepherd boy. And then he was a man on the run because the previous king wanted to kill him, and then he became a king. When I think of the Psalms, for some reason, for me at least, I always think of King David. I think of King David writing the Psalms. I think of a palace. I think of, you know, fancy robes. But we were reminded last week and we'll be reminded again this week, that is not the case all the time. That is, that is simply just not the case. In fact, last week, Paul preached on Psalm 57, and David was in a cave writing this psalm. And we come to this one, and David most likely is out in the middle of the night, gazing into the stars, thinking about the glory and majesty of God. It's really a pretty cool picture. And You say, well, where do we see that? Well, he says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars. There's no mention of the sun. There's only a mention of the moon and the stars. You get the picture, and it's very accurate that David is sitting there. He's looking at the moon. He's looking at the stars. He's looking at God's creation. He's contemplating the things that God has done. He's contemplating himself, which you have set in place. What am I? Who am I? What is man that you are mindful of him? Now, think about King David. A lot of guys have made mention of this, and in the the beginning of of Psalm 8, if you look at the little subheading there, it says, to the choir master according to the Giddeth, a psalm of David. Now, not everyone agrees, and we don't know exactly what that's a reference to. Some would say maybe it's a reference to a tune that this hymn or this song is supposed to be sung to. Some would say, you know, actually it might even be a reference. It it should be translated Gittite, not Giddeth which a Gittite would be someone from Gath who would be a Philistine, so maybe it's talking about Goliath. I think that one's a little bit far-fetched, but here's what we do know. People all agree. It references Gath. Gath was a city in Philistia, 
which is where the Philistines lived. So it references this place that David has quite a relationship with. We already mentioned the story of David and Goliath. So you think of David sitting here on a starry night. He's contemplating all the things that God has done in his life, all the things that God has done in him and through him. He knows who God is, and he also knows who he is. Another incredible thing happened at the city of Gath. The city of Gath is where David defeated the Philistines and brought back the Ark of the Covenant to the people of God. And here's what that meant. It meant that the Ark of the Covenant, the dwelling place of God, the representation of God to his people, had been taken. Israelites had been defeated. David and God's people had been defeated. And David goes into battle, defeats the Philistines, and is going to return the presence of God to the people of God. He is overjoyed, and we see this in 2 Samuel 6. And in 2 Samuel 6, we've mentioned this a lot here before, it's this incredible picture of David worshiping before the Lord. He's dancing. He is having a party as they have basically a processional, a parade of the presence of God being returned to its people to the point that his wife, Michael, begins to make fun of him and says, oh, aren't you acting like a king? So reverent you're being. And he says the famous line, hey, I will be, he didn't say hey, I'm paraphrasing here. He says, I'll be even more undignified than this. I'll go even more crazy for my God, for my Lord, for my king who has delivered his people. You see, David not only knows the victories, David also knows the defeats. This is also the man who sinned with Bathsheba and committed adultery. Cheating not only on his wife, but inviting someone else into a relationship with him to cheat on her husband. Then, when it becomes found out, he plans the murder, essentially, of her husband to try and cover his tracks. This is a man who is acquainted with failure. Remember, we talked about last week, he was on the run from Saul, the king before him, who wanted to kill him. This is a man who was acquainted with grief and sorrow. He's seen the highs and the lows. He knows who he is. He knows the sin in his own heart. And he it comes to this conclusion. That's why he is saying, and that's why we should join with him in saying, what is man that you are mindful of him as you being so majestic of a God, of a Lord? And he moves on in verse 5, and he says this. I can't believe that you would even notice me, that you would even think of me, God, but you don't just notice us. You go beyond that. Verse 5, yet you have made him, mankind, a little lower than the heavenly beings. You have crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands, and you have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the fields the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. David's going, I, I can't believe that you would even notice me being the God of the universe. I think about it like this. I don't know why this came into my mind. You know, again, associations for whatever it's worth. David in his mind is thinking like, listen, I have more in common with an ant than I do with the God of the universe. Anyone, you all are in that median age. People seen Honey, I Shrunk the Kids back when you were younger. You remember that, that scene where they're all shrunk and they run into that ant and they're, they're like the same size? It's like, I always think about like, we have more in common with an ant. That's really more our speed compared to God. But I don't know that we always view ourselves that way. 
See, David had a right picture. He had a right picture, and when he moves on in verses 5 through 8, he's almost like overwhelmed and amazed, like, but you don't just notice us, God. You've made us a little bit lower than the heavenly beings, a little bit lower than God, because you want us to be your representatives to the world. You've chosen us to represent you to the world around you, and you've given us a responsibility. You've given us a job. In verse 6, you have given him, us, dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. And this is a reference basically to the job that God has given us. This is a reference to some passages in Genesis, some passages in Isaiah. And so basically I have four passages that we're going to go through. The first two will be on the screen and the, the second two won't. We're going to move through them fairly quickly. So Genesis 1, we're speaking in terms of creation here. Genesis 1, 26 through 28 says this. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. You see a lot of the same words there in Psalm 8. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And those words simply mean to rule over, to make the earth work for you, to rule over the animals, to rule over the, the lands, to, to make it work, to make it prosper. And then he goes on in Genesis 2.15 and he says this, And the Lord took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. I want us to see what these things literally mean. To work it, obviously, you're like, well, I'm familiar with that word. I understand what that means, till the ground, work it. It literally means to work, but it also has this connotation, to serve, to serve it, to work it. And when he says, and to keep it, if we think about this literally, it starts to open up the meaning. To watch over it, to keep, to preserve, to be careful in your care for something. And so our call in relation to creation is to rule over it, have dominion, care for it, cultivate it, watch over it, preserve it. But then as God's relationship with his people goes on, and as is referenced in verse 5 with us being made a little bit lower than the heavenly beings, God says, I want you to do this as well. And in Genesis 12, 2, God says this, and I will make a great nation of you, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. God's design for his people is that they would take the blessings that they have received from God and in turn be a blessing to the world around them. And then later on in Isaiah, this is added in Isaiah chapter 49. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob. He's basically saying, I mean, think about that. That's an interesting statement. It's too light a thing. It's not enough that you would basically just gather as the church and enjoy one another and raise up one another. That's awesome, but that's, it's not quite enough. And bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And so in this, in Psalm chapter 8, we're seeing David referencing basically 
the job, the position, the purpose of mankind. That we would rule over creation, that we would subdue it, that we would preserve it, that we would take care of it, and that we would be a blessing to those around us, a light sharing his salvation with everyone around us. And David is overwhelmed saying, how in the world am I worthy of that when I know my own heart, when I know my failures, when I know how incredible you are and how low I am? And that's why it makes total sense for David to end in verse 9, O Lord, our Lord, How majestic is your name in all the earth. See, verse 1 and verse 9 are exactly the same. It's like David is taking this on and going, I'm going to make a statement, I'm going to prove it with seven verses, and I'm going to say it again. Do you see it now? Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, that you would love us that much, that you would care for us that much, that you would give us purpose, that you would give us life. See, this psalm points to so many things. And there's a lot, of, a lot of ways that we could take it. And in, in studying it, there are just a few things that I want to kind of close with, things that we should take away. If you want to call it the so what, as Tom Schrader used to, here we are, the so what. I want us to take away a few things, and I try and, and, and be fairly practical. This, this first point I struggled with a little bit, and I'll tell you why when I say it. But here are three things that I want us to take away. The first is this. The confidence for life. The confidence for life. I struggle with this point for a little bit because I really don't like self-help. I'm not a fan of self-help books. And I, I said that phrase and it just, it sounded a little bit self-helpy to me. And here's how I will div- divide that for you very, very clearly. If you take that phrase and you think that what I am intimating is that the, the confidence for life is I'm trying to bolster your confidence in yourself... And this psalm is supposed to boost your confidence so that you can live a better life. We are missing the point of this psalm. Our confidence is firmly and soundly not in ourselves. Our confidence is in God and in his majesty. The confidence for life comes from him. And the reason that I see that here is because this psalm seeks to put us in our rightful place. This psalm seeks to paint a picture that shows us who God is and who we are in the midst of him. There is no more confident place, there is no better place that we can be than honestly being who God made us to be. He's saying, listen, God is majestic, God is excellent, God is all-powerful, God is glorious, God is famous. We are nothing like that. But yet... God in his mercy and love gave us an incredible task. God gave us purpose. God gave us life. Man, that that puts me in my place. See, the American mantra is that my life is about my story. That we live to tell our story. That is not why I live. And if you love Christ, that is not why you live. We live to tell his story. And it is the greatest story. It is the only story. It is the true story. We we should be incredibly thankful to be characters in it. God brought us in as these little bit roles. We should be jumping up and down like people in the background. So excited to be there. We're telling his story. And the best place 
The confidence that you get for life is when we come back to it. See, I know that we can identify sometimes with the Psalms like 73 or different 57 when David is in trouble and he's crying out to the Lord and we feel like that sometimes. Life is tough. We encounter trials. We encounter turmoil. And I would never want to make light of those things. But I do want you to know this. When you come to church on a Sunday morning, part of what I pray that we have here, part of what I pray that happens here on a regular basis is that the words of Scripture when we come back to understanding our place, when we see God for who he is and we see us for who we are, that it soothes the soul of the suffering because it puts us back in our rightful place. See, we started in the beginning. Music and cultural things are not transcendent. The Psalms are transcendent. They're as relevant today as they ever have been. And the truth of the Bible is transcendent. It rises above. It calls out to you and invites you to rise above any circumstance in your life and place this foundational truth first. God loves you so much that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross to save your soul. And he gives you purpose in life and hope and a job to do. We gain confidence in life when we understand that. Here's the second thing. The second thing we should walk away with is the emotion of worship. The emotion of worship. I've grown up in the church, like I said, and a lot of times emotion can get a bad rap. And it's understandable. It's completely understandable. In fact, a phrase that I love and I use on a regular basis is one that I heard from Tom Schrader years and years and years ago. What you know trumps what you feel. I love that. Because there are so many times that my heart, my emotions, the way that I feel can take me places that the truth of what I know tells me don't go there. Don't do that. Don't feel that way. Don't get angry at that. It's a great phrase. But we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And, and here's why I say that, because God made us emotional. We are reflecting part of his image when we emote. Now, because we're wicked and flawed and we're sinful, those things are broken. So we don't do it right all the time. That's why the Bible says that the heart is deceitfully wicked. The heart, which represents your emotion, is going to pull you astray at times, and you need knowledge, you need the truth to inform it. But man... Don't stop understanding and plumbing the depths of emotion that God has given you, particularly when it comes to experiencing his story in your life, particularly when it comes to understanding your place in his story. I was thinking about this, and I know sometimes I can be um, overly analytical. My friends will say that all the time. I think about things too much, and sometimes I think I'm trying to explain something that's deep in my head, and it doesn't find a landing place anywhere. Like, it probably should have stayed in here. This could be one of those things, so I'm just going to warn you right off the bat. But as I was thinking about this, I thought, what is emotion? What draws it out? What creates it? Why do I come to this passage and feel this level of emotion? And here's what I came up with. When two realities, two truths that are very, very far apart are brought together, the distance in between those truths is emotion. The distance between those two, two truths, rather, is what represents my emotional response. And the further they are away, the, the more they seem like they should not be together, the more emotion it should draw out of me. In 2006, someone from this church very generously gave me and my family a trip to Lake Tahoe. And it was awesome. 
We, we loved it. My kids were very, very small. And it just seemed like this trip was blessed right from the beginning. Micah, my son, was five years old. My daughter, Maddie, I think was three years old. They still talk about it. And, and when they came back from it, they were telling everybody that they had been to Lake Taco because they didn't know how to pronounce Lake Tahoe. And we rode in a boat, and they looked for the Loch Ness Monster through a, you know, a see-through window in the bottom of a boat and everything. They just thought it was awesome. Well, this was clearly blessed from the beginning because as I was getting on the plane, I walked by first class, and I thought, man, that guy looks familiar. And I got back to my seat, and I began to realize, oh my gosh, that guy is Ladanian Tomlinson. Now, some of you are looking at me like my wife did and say, who? So? So what? That guy who was sitting in first class that we passed is, I mean, remember, this is 2006 for those of you who know football. For those of you who don't, he's a running back in the National Football League. He has since retired, but at the time, he was probably the best player in the world. He was the best running back in the league. He would go on to win the MVP of the National Football League that year, and an amazing running back. And and my wife, again, had no idea, but I was overjoyed. Now, it could just stop there that I shared a flight with LaDainian Thomason, or LT, as people call him. I mean, I do now because we're kind of friends, you know, but. <laughs> but, um, but it didn't because God showered his blessing on me and my family. And for some reason, the, the airline lost my bags for a, little bit of while, for a little while, rather. And you know who else's bags they lost for a little while? LaDainian Thomason. I come down to the baggage carousel after waiting for a little while, and the only person there... There's no one else around. LaDainian Tomlinson is standing there waiting for his bags with his wife and maybe one other person that he's traveling with, and I walk up there with my family. And in my mind, I'm thinking, all right, don't be an idiot. <laughs> don't, don't walk. Uh. <laughs> I get pictures that my wife makes, talks about that all the time, and she makes fun of herself for being that way in front of people who she's really impressed by. And I'm thinking, I'll play, play it cool. And I'm like, hey, so you're LaDainian Tomlinson, huh? I shake his hand, like, I don't want an autograph or anything, you know. And uh, we're standing there, small talking, waiting for our bags, like two normal people. And God bless my kids, Micah was a cute little boy, and his wife loved him. And so she, he was running around, and, and they were talking about our kids, and we were chatting for a while, and he was there for a golf tournament, and we caught up with him at the golf tournament, and he gave me autographs and all that kind of stuff and for the kids and everything. It was incredible. It was awesome. And I got in the car after that experience in the airport, and I'm babbling to my wife. And she's still like, oh, okay, whatever. You met someone cool at the airport. But here's the deal. The reality of who LaDainian Tomlinson is, you know, this guy who I had on my fantasy football team and won me a championship that very same year, right? The reality of who he is and the reality of who I am are very far away. And I never thought I would have had an opportunity to meet someone like that. It's like... I'm a guy who never could have played football, but always would have dreamed of playing football. You're a guy who's doing it, and at the highest level. This is amazing. This is incredible. It was, it was insane. It was definitely a divinely appointed moment. <laughs> I could be going too far. There. I probably overreached. Here's why I hate illustrations like that. Because they fail so miserably to illustrate when we try and take it back to God. Now, I love them, and the reason I share it is because I think you begin to understand what I'm talking about in how emotion is created. Emotion is created when we we have these two things that we don't think would ever be together, and then they are, and the distance, the, the further that you feel like it's out of reach, the more emotion you should feel. But then we come back to God, and I have to tell you, 
that story doesn't even come close. It pales in comparison to the distance that God had to go to redeem you and me, to make us new, to make us whole. What David is saying in Psalm chapter 8 is immeasurably more than any experience you could ever experience on the face of this earth. Think of the greatest thing that you could ever experience and double it by infinity. That doesn't even make sense. You can't double something by infinity. But like multiply, you, you cannot fathom the majesty and excellence of God and the depravity of man, the distance that God went to save you, to save me, the emotion of worship. That's why the Bible calls to you and calls to me and says, be emotional in worship. And here's what I want to say. I'm not asking for us to, to go crazy, although I would say that I am looking forward to a great time of worship in communion and response to Psalm chapter 8. But I was thinking about this too. People's response and emotional response is different. But it is not unemotional. I think of my father and how in my younger years as a believer, recognizing that I was much more expressive when it came time to worship and sing than he was. And as an arrogant young Christian, I began to think judgment. And then I remember sitting in a worship service with him and watching him as he sung Amazing Grace. And he wasn't raising his hands. And he's not the guy who's going to be dancing around. But when the picture of Psalm 8 was expressed in a song, and the grace of God came on him, and I've seen this multiple times since because I realized I didn't even have the eyes to see it. The tears were rolling down his cheeks as he considered the depth, the chasm that Jesus crossed in order to save him. Emotion. Wild emotion because of what God has done for us. That is our response. Amen? It has to be. And so as we come to our time of communion, I'm going to give you one more, and it relates perfectly to communion, and it's crazy the way that these passages are tied. Psalm chapter 8 is tied to a passage in, in Hebrews, and, and here's the last thing, an encouraging statement for people who understand what Psalm 8 just said, and here, is it, here it is. I want us to take away the victory of Jesus in the midst of our failure. The victory of Jesus in the midst of our failure. If you listen to those four verses in Genesis and Isaiah before and you realize the job that God has given us, you would have to admit that we as humankind have not done a very good job. We have not done a very good job at managing his creation. We have not done a very good job at being a blessing to the nations around us. We have not done as humanity as a whole. My encouragement to you is that we would take this responsibility seriously and we would be the people who are the light to the nations. But historically and as a people, as human beings, we've not done a good job. We've failed miserably. But Jesus Christ has had victory where we have had defeat. Jesus Christ was strong where we are weak. Jesus Christ filled all of the gaps that we fail in, that we miss. And in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 6, it says this. It has been testified somewhere, and then he quotes, literally quotes Psalm chapter 8. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? 
You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, Jesus Christ, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Now I know there's a lot of words in there, but here's what it means. Here's what it is saying. Jesus Christ came and fulfilled what we could not fulfill. Jesus Christ came and lived to God's standard in the places that we could not live to God's standard. Jesus came and answered the question, what is man that you are mindful of him? Apart from Christ, we are nothing. But in Christ, we are sons and daughters of the king. When we come to the communion table, when we take the bread that represents his body, his life, his sacrifice for us, when we take the cup which represents his blood that washes us of sin, we are celebrating and remembering this incredible truth this incredible chasm that was crossed by Christ to redeem us, to save us, to call us sons and daughters and welcome us into his story. And I can't wait to do that with you this morning. Maybe you're here this morning in Psalm 8 and the words of the gospel are not something that you're trusting in currently. One, I would say we are so glad that you are here and we would love to have the opportunity to share more with you. But I would also like just to invite you to maybe pass these elements by and take this time to consider maybe what God is trying to show you, what God is trying to speak to you. But believer, this morning we celebrate. This morning we remember. This morning we have confidence in life based on God and who he is and what he has done for us. Based on the story we find in Psalm 8 where God in his majesty reached down to lowly mankind and saved us through the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, and God, I am so grateful again to have the opportunity to share your word. God, there is nothing better than your story. God, I pray that it encourages us. I pray that it uplifts us. God, I pray that it gives us hope in the midst of any circumstance that we are going through. God, I pray that we worship you and we respond to you the way that you call us to in your word. God, I pray that we don't reserve emotion for things that deserve it less than you. God, let us give you everything we have because you deserve it. We love you. We praise you. All for your glory, Father. Amen.